Hi, I'm Laura Brady, CEO of Concierge Auctions. And hi, I'm Chad Roffers, Chairman of Concierge Auctions. And this is Block Talk. I am thrilled to be joined here today with Mickey Alam Khan. And Mickey is a brand builder, he's a publisher, an event organizer, a public speaker, a marketing expert, and a retail futurist. So a lot of great kudos with Mickey here. And currently Mickey's the president of Luxury Portfolio International. So I've had the pleasure of knowing Mickey through some of his prior career, but I'm thrilled and I'm thrilled also to know him in his current role at LPI because we have a longstanding relationship with Luxury Portfolio. So welcome, Mickey. Glad to Thank have you. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so glad to be on your webinar and I look forward to spending a lovely hour with you. Specifically, I look forward to digging into Mickey's expertise as it relates to luxury clients and dealing with the luxury sector of the market, um, both in real estate, which is the industry that he and I are most involved with right now, but also as it relates to retail of other fine assets and goods. Um, so we have a little bit of alignment there as well. I, I, prior to founding Concierge Auctions, worked with the Neiman Marcus Group corporately. So came from the retail background also. And so find Mickey's wealth of knowledge being super helpful. And hopefully everyone gets that out of this session today as well. Mickey, I wanted to just touch on Luxury Portfolio International a bit. So LPI is a division of leading real estate companies of the world. Can you tell us just a little bit about the distinction of those two brands? Luxury Portfolio International is the luxury marketing arm of the leading real estate companies of the world. And the leading real estate companies of the world represents quite a few of the largest brokers worldwide. And we've got about 225 of them who are in the luxury market. And so that's the division I run. And what we offer is marketing health, media buying health, intelligence, and uh, expertise to make these luxury brokers smarter in the way they work and give them the tools to go and talk to millionaires and billionaires with a sense of confidence. So that's what Luxury Portfolio International does. And specifically in your role as president there, I, well, one, since I knew you before, I was thrilled to see the announcement come across that you took on this role as president because I just love the team there that you now have the pleasure of working alongside Paul and the, the rest of your group. You do fabulous things, but also I found it really interesting that your experience with Luxury Daily, which is how I know you, and also the Women in Luxury conferences that you've hosted in the past that I've been involved in, um, really have, there's, there was a portion of real estate in the publication and conference, but also it encompassed all other things luxury. So you're bringing your expertise from other industries into the real estate industry now. Absolutely. And, you know, all almost all of luxury ends up in the home, including the customer. So I think it's very apropos that, you know, I made this switch in my life. And I'm very happy because, you know, I do come from a real estate background. Uh, I'm still involved in my family business. My father was a former developer and he's the landlord now. So I grew up in this business. And to me, uh, uh, you know, I love it. I have two lives. One is digital and the other is physical, bricks and mortar. So <laughs> I'm uh, very happy to blend the two in this role. Yeah, 
And that's another thing that we have in common that my family also has real estate roots. So we kind of both grew up in it. And we also both diverted. I know you've told me before that you said you would not be in the real estate industry. And yes. here you are. <laughs> never say never. We have a few questions that we've outlined for everyone listening in today and want to just dig into Mickey's view on these questions. So first off, want to talk about your insights into just the global luxury market in general and what you're seeing right now, Mickey, with changes and moves in the luxury market. Excellent. Thank you, Laura. So, I mean, for those of you who follow the luxury world, obviously the luxury business is basically facing the same issues that other sectors face is you have this pandemic and that's causing all these national lockdowns and closures. So that's common across the board. The luxury business is a $1.3 trillion business globally. And that includes everything from real estate to travel and hospitality, automotive, fashion, leather goods, wines and spirits, uh, fragrance and beauty. So a lot of these sectors got hit this spring and in Asia last fall with China's closures because people couldn't walk into stores. So what luxury brands quickly did was pivot to digital. And so if there's one emerging theme in the luxury business right now, it's the acceleration of e-commerce and digital marketing. Right now, about 15, maybe 20% of the luxury business is conducted online. And we see that accelerating to 30 to 35% in the next two years. And I won't be surprised in five years time, or six years time, if about 40 to 45% of all luxury goods will be bought online. Because once you move online, it's very rare that you move back to the store experience. So that's the one trend we're seeing developing rather quickly. And it's not, it's not evolution, unfortunately, it's revolution because we are being forced to buy products online. What we're seeing obviously is a trend towards more well-known brands, brands that have a legacy and a heritage. The net beneficiaries obviously are Louis Vuitton, Cartier, Hermes, Dior, uh, Chanel. And all the research we've seen shows that these brands have benefited from consumer purchase over the lockdown period. There are net losers in this time, and that's travel and hospitality. Hotel brands have been hit very badly. And again, in the ultra high end of the market, not so much because, you know, when you're ultra high net worth, you have your own jets and you have access to your own second, third, fourth homes. And if you have to jet off to some resort, you typically take the whole bungalow. So that market has stayed resilient, but anything below that is basically in a bit of turmoil. Another trend that's developing is uh, the major luxury houses, LVMH, Caring, uh, Chanel, Hermes, Richemont, they've been very transparent in the last six months about the way they conduct business, the way they source raw material. So the emphasis on sustainability has just amplified. Because today's Generation X, I mean, not so much X, but Y and Z, insist on knowing that the product they bought has not harmed the environment. So you have to move to a values-based retail business, and that's what's happening. So that's another trend I see developing in the luxury business. And these bigger houses, obviously, they have deeper pockets so that they can afford to have this pivot to more eco-friendly products. It'll take a few more years 
to get there, but they've taken some firm steps. And I think that's another thing that they're basically ahead of the curve when it comes to sustainability compared to non-luxury products. So if you're looking at the emerging themes over the last six months, digital adoption, e-commerce, omni-channel in the sense you buy online, pick up in store, or uh, curbside pickup, uh, and then sustainability. Now, follow what's happening in Europe. You heard this week that France is under a national lockdown. Germany is under a partial national lockdown. The UK, unfortunately, may go under a national lockdown. So will Italy at some point and Spain. Now, these are the core centers of luxury production. Most of these governments have allowed factories to be open, but I don't know if people will be willing to work in those environments if the number of COVID cases rises. So there might be a disruption in the supply chain again, which brings me to the final uh, trend or the final savior of luxury, that's China. Because North America and Europe are under stress, China seems to solve the COVID problem. That's where the COVID pandemic it, uh, started. And for some uh, strange reason, they don't have these issues anymore. The Chinese people cannot travel overseas. So whatever money they'd spend on travel, going to France or the UK or the United States, they're spending at home. As a result, China's share of luxury purchasing is increasing. And we see right now the Chinese account for, I believe, about depending on whose survey and whose results you follow, because BCG and Bain and McKinsey have their own research out there, but they say about 25 to 35% of all purchases are done by Chinese consumers. In three to four years, if this trend continues, one out of two purchases of luxury products worldwide will be made by a Chinese consumer. So luxury will be heavily dependent on the Chinese market, which means we have to be very good to China. If you're a French brand or a German brand or a UK brand. You can't afford to have any tiff with the Chinese government. So the dependence of China will increase. So these are the emerging trends I see in the overall business. What it makes me think of is, of course, being in the real estate industry, how is that going to affect real estate? And for a lot of the folks on the line who are in the real estate industry as well, I do want to point out that, however, while our minds always go to real estate because that's where we're entrenched, that's where we do our business. I love that, Mickey, when you and I spoke about your new role with Luxury Portfolio, that your goal is to bring what you said is an acute awareness of what's happening around the world of luxury to real estate experts so that we're not only thinking about how these trends affect real estate, but also just in general, how they affect our clients, how they affect our clients purchasing and experience in other luxury sectors. Because, of course, we want to be aware of changes that are happening with our clients outside of just the real estate purchases as well and be able to speak knowledgeably to them about those things. I mean, you're absolutely right, Laura, because what I bring is the lifestyle awareness. And that's very key. A oh, lifestyle yeah. awareness. 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 So the thing is that when you're talking to a homeowner, an affluent homeowner, I mean, they're living the life, right? I mean, they've got the Hermes scarf, they've got, uh, you know, a Bentley or they've got a Range Rover. Or, you know, they're living the life. You have to understand what makes them tick. What's happening right now to the affluent homeowner, right? Let's take a step back. The one thing I didn't mention was because of this pandemic, everyone's working from home, including the affluent. And more so the affluent because the affluent don't like getting sick. They're spending more time at home. When you spend more time at home, 
you see more flaws in your home, which means there's a huge trend towards home renovations, refurbishment. People are not satisfied with their properties. They're going and buying new properties. People who live in cities are upgrading to smaller towns or to uh, suburbs. People who have second homes are making them their primary homes or their co-primary homes. So these trends are very key. You spend a lot of time at home and you've got a huge house. You don't want to work out of your dining room. You want a proper study. So they convert one of the empty rooms into a study. And then you want a proper office that's very tech-friendly for Zoom calls and technology. So you're going to see a tremendous shift in the way the home is perceived. It is now your office. It's your refuge. It's your safe place, and it's also your home. We are also seeing more entertainment being done at home in smaller numbers, right? You don't have happy hours. You don't go to mass gatherings. So you're inviting friends and family, and you're eating outside just to be on the safe side. So the emphasis on proper gardens or proper outdoor spaces has just grown, increased. So you're seeing emerging trends around the home. So when you, as a luxury broker or as an agent, uh, are informed about what's happening with the customer or consumer uh, in, say, in fragrance and beauty or in watches and jewelry, it gives you a hint of where the money is going. And what the, so I'll give you another example. One would think that during this time, sales of watches dropped. Yes, the switch watch industry is under stress. But guess which two watches have seen increase in sales? Rolex and particularly. Men don't know where to spend money. They're not traveling. They're not going and doing the usual sporting stuff if you're affluent. You're buying more watches, jewelry. When you're informed about that trend and you see a prospect, you're going for a listing and you're going to get that listing and you see someone wearing the latest patek and you're aware of what's going on in that world, you can make one comment, just a passing comment, and guess what? You've connected and that's the edge you have. And that's what I'm bringing to LPI to its members to give them that edge that you can walk the walk and talk the talk. And that's why it's very, well, very important for brokers and agents to be aware of their entire ecosystem. The house is the number one luxury purchase. It's one where all the family members are involved. You don't have to just rule the husband or the wife. You have to rule the children. So you must know enough about the kid. So that's where I tell you, if you have knowledge about the overall industry, you're very smart when you're pitching for new business or very smart when you're trying to sell that house to a prospect. The next topic that we have on the list, we've already touched on a lot of these points as far as what are some of the market demands and creative solutions that are going on right now. So a few that I heard from you is since everyone's working from home, the emphasis is shifted to home and self-improvement and also that China continues to perform. Those are kind of things that are playing into demands right now. Is there anything else that you would touch on with this slide before we go to the next question? No, I think it's pretty much, uh, you know, you've got to be aware. Uh, right now, you know, the U.S. is also going through its own issues with the pandemic. We don't know if we'll have a national lockdown. Uh, mm -hmm. We are seeing, you know, houses on the market flying off. But now we are seeing a slight slowdown, right? Because now the list, uh, the listings are sitting for a longer time because the first wave already bought these houses and now we're seeing a slight slowdown. So as we enter the winter months, uh, you're going to see more people stay at home, more people think of stuff to do because it's dark outside. So, you know, uh, entertainment, use of entertainment will go up, uh, you know, so th this stuff that's going to happen around the world, it's not bad news. I have to say the U.S. is better prepared than abroad. But once we have the vaccine, I'm fairly confident that within a year's time, uh, we'll bounce back. 
And you have to keep in mind that the affluent consumer is more resilient than the non-affluent consumer. The U.S. stock market has performed extremely well in the last few months, although we've had a slight slowdown this week. But once we've got the elections behind us, one way or the other, the stock market will go back up again. The wealthy's wealth is indexed to the stock market, although they're diversified into art and property and jewelry. But the stock market is a key indicator of wealth. And as long as that holds up, I don't see a problem. In fact, I think we're going to reach Dow 30 in the first half of next year. I feel the core customer base is okay. It's just the media perception and the way you read and get depressed. Uh, but if you stay clear of the news, you can continue your life. Good points. And actually, that leads us to we do have next up consumer trends and predictions for 2021. I mean, when we're talking about 2021, we're basically already there. I know yep. as a company, we're already thinking as if we are there with you know our planning and our pipeline and deals that are coming up. So for anyone who's in any sort of business, um, I know 2021 is just right in front of us. So what are some other predictions that you see that could play into the market next year? I would reiterate what I said about digital. I think if you're in business, you have to improve your digital offerings. If you're a brokerage, make sure that you have a fantastic website and an app to back it up. Make sure your listings are very easily searchable. Ensure that you have great video. I was talking to one of our members in the Cayman Islands. They're repping a new development on the beach there. I forget, it's in the Grand Cayman. They spent $2 million on videos, $2 million. People are buying houses through FaceTime and they're buying houses through a video. You send the video, they like it, deal done. So improve your digital presence, a better website, more video. Make sure you use uh, Instagram to its full potential. So that's the digital story. Then make sure that when you've got a listing, that the property is accentuated with a history. Don't just describe the property and say, all right, this is a colonial, this, this, this. Delve deep. If it's a $25 million property, it has a provenance somewhere or the other. Dig it up. Play that up. Add a little color to your listings. At the end of the day, you have to woo people with sight, sound, and a story. So I'd say add a little more flavor in terms of personality for the property. Think of this property as a human being. Who would that person be, right? And that's what you want to develop, that property into a person, and you sell that. So I see next year, you have to make sure that you have a story with the property. You have to be more digitally savvy. Make sure that you are also very, very careful about your money. You know, I hate to say this. I mean, you know, the economy may turn either way abroad, not so much in the U.S. The Eurozone is basically a bit stressed right now. And if you have a lockdown continuing for three to four months, you may not have that business coming into the U.S. market or Americans may not be going into that market there. So if you're in business, regardless whether you're in real estate or not in real estate, conserve your cash. Invest where you need to in marketing and digital, but conserve your cash. And other than that, I am fairly optimistic about next year. Uh, I know that we are on track to get a vaccine in the next couple of months here. Uh, uh, same thing in the UK, and we've got these trials in the next few months. And I think if, if the vaccines work, we'll be out of the woods somewhere around the end of uh, fall 2022, I mean 2021. We should be clear, because it takes time for the vaccine to be available to the general population. So I'm fairly optimistic about next year, as long as the stock market holds up. 
if that yeah. knows dives, then of course, call me back. Really, really interesting insight, Vicky, and I completely agree. We've experienced, of course, this year as a company, an increase in digital experience with clients. First, of course, during the lockdowns, and but also continuing afterwards, even in cities where people are, you know, moving around a little bit more and going and physically seeing properties, we continue to have a very strong presence of clients that are bidding sight unseen, meaning that they haven't been there personally in sight, but they have experienced the digital walkthroughs, videos, like you said, FaceTiming with their agent or someone on our team, and for sure seeing that continuing and. Actually, one thing I found interesting yesterday, we had a company event with a scientist and he's involved in the a lot of COVID testing. He's involved in 90% of the tests that are going on right now, his company is, and 70% of the vaccinations that are underway. So it was his insights were super interesting. And one of the things that he said was he likened the medical innovation right now that's going on to the race for space and how quickly everyone is running right now to seek innovation. So a lot of different, you know, things in medicine that we're going to see on the other side of this that are benefits to us personally, like more at home testing for other, of course, other types of illnesses other than just COVID by virtue of, of uh, them having accelerated that. And you think about that also in other realms with our businesses, technology, the digital innovation that's going on right now. So it's more important than ever to stay on top of the new trends and the new technologies so that you don't fall short, right? I mean, we've, yes. we set, certainly have seen that in past years, but this year in spades because there's so much innovation going on right now. Absolutely right. Absolutely. And I, I think we have to innovate or we won't succeed. And if there's anything the U.S. is known for, it's innovation. And, you know, I'll tell you, even in the luxury industry, they're innovating when you're talking about sustainability. They're getting rid of packaging that's extraneous, right? They're trying to cut the carbon footprint. They're trying different ways to make sure that they appeal to the end customer. At the end of the day, the customer wants to feel good about their purchase. And it could be a house. It could be a product. And it is your job as the brand to make them feel good about the purchase because it reflects your values and your lifestyle. So I think, uh, you know, what we'll see next year is a change in consumer attitude that's a little more refined, uh, a little more sensitive to these external concerns. Gosh, Mickey, you're like teeing up perfectly my next questions that I have coming up because the next one's about client relationships and experiences. So how do we continue to enhance the experiences that clients have with us personally as well as with our brand, especially when we don't have as much personal touch with them and maybe even more so in retail, right? A lot of the luxury brands, they're having to create that digital relationship more so than ever because they did used to be able to have a combination of digital and in person and in some ways there's no in-person relationship right now and that is a very important point you raised because that's the biggest challenge luxury brands face today keep in mind that about 75 percent of sales still occur in store right which means that salespeople are used to reacting to business that walks in they're not used to clienteling very few brands are well-versed in that art of clienteling. So brands such as Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom, Saks Fifth Avenue, and all the and Bloomingdale's, all the 
department store chains are basically reorienting their staff to think of their black books, to be proactive and build a client base so that they can reach out to them and say, look, we've got this latest season's offerings. We can do video showrooms with you and, you know, we can set aside, uh, you know, part of the store for you and you can come in and exclusive appointments. We can uh, give you a uh, FaceTime uh, walkthroughs. So you've got those things in progress right now. Everyone's using email. There's no doubt about it. But I think the most important thing is if you know the customer or the prospect, every so often call them, just pick up the phone. I think that's the one thing we've lost is the art of talking on the phone, just picking it up. We're so scared. I mean, what shocks me is today people text to see if you can call. And, you know, I joined this company. I say, you know what? I'm going to get them used to my phone calls. So we've got an internal network. I call them. I'm not going to exchange 10 emails with that person when I, a one-minute phone call can solve the problem. Pick up the phone. It's very important. You'd be surprised. Send a postcard or a handwritten note. Very few people do that. It'll bring back a lot of rewards. I'll tell you one thing. A few years ago, Neiman Marcus went through his restructuring and they instructed all their staff to stop writing handwritten notes and just email people. I'm in New York. We've got Bergdorf Goodman here, which is part of Neiman Marcus. The guy who used to sell me uh, colognes was quite upset about that. He said, that's how I get my customers coming in. I'd write them a two-sentence, three-sentence note, mail it, and invariably these guys would show up. He said that email is not the same. And he said they want me to share the email addresses. So it's no longer my list. It becomes a company list. I look at my personal experience after the note stopped. I didn't go that often to Bergdorf. I can tell you he told me the same thing. So a handwritten note goes a long, long way. Now, for example, in the house, right? You're pitching for a new listing. Now, I know some brokers do that. You go meet this person, lovely house, send them a nice thank you note. Don't be overly effusive. Just three lines. Send on nice paper. That's it. They'll read those three lines. It'll stick in their mind. Yeah. Within 24 to 48 hours. Simple stuff like that. So clienteling is very, very key. And I think that's going to be a skill that you'll require from new hires and existing staff in 2021. Clienteling. Very important skill. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you've got the usual you know, stuff that we do. But right now, stores in New York, Boston, Chicago, they're pretty much empty. Not too many people are walking in. So e-commerce is doing the heavy lifting. As a result, you need to have proper phone banks. You need to have proper call centers. The one failing of luxury brands is they do not know how to take a phone call and return them very quickly. And that's a challenge I think the industry has to solve, is when someone calls you, you've got to follow. I always tell people, if you're looking at brands that are very good at taking calls, LL Bean and Lanzen, they're the gold standards. And I've always told luxury brands, follow those guys. Three rings and your phone is answered. And they help you. When you're a luxury brand, highlight that phone option. You'll build a relationship with the brand. Yeah. Make it prominent. So I'd say clienteling, better phone skills, and handwritten notes. I always love handwritten notes. I mean, we just don't get those very often these days. And to... The fact that so many of us are home so much, if not full time, having a stack of handwritten notes next to you and whenever someone comes to mind for whatever reason, just sticking a stamp on it with a few words um, and 
they're more likely to be home to receive that note than ever before, right? That's been another issue in the past. A lot of our clients travel or they have multiple homes. And so you don't know where they're going to be, which home at any given day, but that's a little more predictable. Sending flowers, you know, or something that they can enjoy while they are at home. And then also the incorporation of the digital world with whatever in-person experience they can have. You mentioned Nordstrom. I personally love Nordstrom, and they now have the opportunity to fill your fitting room with clothes digitally. So online or through their app, you can select what you want, and then you can personally go in, and it's all waiting in a fitting room for you. So you don't have to, you know, move around the store if you don't want to. Um, And then also. I personally enjoy seeing the online shopping, looking at items on the models and being able to put them in the fitting room that way as opposed to going in person. So that incorporation of digital and in-person world is important. Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. Love it. Okay, so let's get into industry leader growth tips. So what are some growth tips that the listeners here can takeaway? What's most important to help people grow? I mean, some of those, I guess we touched on with client relationships, but anything else to add there? This is very simple. And and yet people don't do it. Spend more money on marketing. Look, when everyone stopped talking, if you speak up, you're heard. And I think most people don't realize that now is the best time to promote your brand. Now is the best time to get the word out because there's less noise for you. And it could be any forms of marketing. It could be direct marketing. It could be brand marketing. It could be social media marketing. You've got people's attention. To your point, Laura, we're sitting at home. And what's happening is when you sit at home, you're not always in front of your desk. Your kids are in the background. You're stepping up for a bed. You're coming up. But what? you're still at home, and you're in that little captive uh, market, and you've got people's attention. And I think you don't have to worry about the multiple distractions of billboards or of, you know, storefronts and all that. So whatever marketing you do, whether it's digital or magazine ads, you know, I mean, it helps because in downturns is when you ramp up your marketing because then people remember you. The recall is extremely high. So I'd say spend more time in marketing to acquaint your target audience with your brand. Remind them who you are. Get in touch with your list again. So if you've got a customer list of 10,000 or 20,000, assign people on your team to write them handwritten notes over a month. You will see wonders from that effort. doesn't take much. Uh, if you've got an email marketing campaign, craft it in a way which is not boilerplate. So I'd say increase your marketing budget. Don't decrease it. Uh, make sure you're more digitally savvy in e-commerce. Other than that, if you want to be smarter, I'd say ramp up your PR budget. I come from the media background, and I can tell you right now, PR agencies are desperate to get some good news out. If you've got a good story, don't keep it to yourself. Let the world know. If you've got a great house, make sure people are aware of it. Now, don't just, you know, if you've got a great house, don't just send a perform a release and send it to everybody. Say, all right, I'll give this exclusive to the Wall Street Journal or I'll give it to the New York Times or I'll give it to USA Today, whoever you want to give it to. But get the maximum bang for your buck from whatever assets you have. And don't just think that this is, 
oh, this is a downturn and everything bad. No, this is a great opportunity for you to stand out when other people have backed down. So that's what I'd say. Raise your voice. Uh, you know, uh, raise your head a bit. You, know, you won't lose it. Great point. And when you're telling the story about that property, I loved your point of figuring out how to differentiate the property. Our marketing team, I know Crystal Abbey, our CMO, was on actually your LPI event a few weeks ago, and she talked about the one thing, figuring out what you can identify with that property that is going to be the flag that sets the marketing campaign. So is it the historical pedigree of the property? Is it a certain amenity that makes it stand out? Is it, if, you know, if it's not a $20 million plus property, if it's, you know, lower, you know, price, then maybe it's the school district that the property's in, or just what is it that's the one thing that helps that pretty differentiate from others around it? And that's what you're telling in the press release and in every element of your marketing about it. Laura, you raised a very important point. Now, what's the most important room today in your house? Think about it. What's the most important room? You've taken over the dining room for a lot of our Zoom calls. That's a big table. We can dump all our papers there, right? I mean, if you're affluent and you've got a room, a kid's room that's no longer used, or you've got an office which is not so good, I'd say invest in that. So anytime you're a broker or your prospect and you want to basic, make sure that your client gets more money for their listing, I would encourage them to do a remodel of that room that is supposed to be the office. That's where the money should be spent. The office is the new kitchen. To me, that is what I see as an area of investment. Where do we, when you have to sell a house, you typically remodel the bathroom and you go to the kitchen. Those are the two areas that get a lot of the money. I'd say the third, the study slash office slash library. Make it Zoom friendly, good desk, great light coming in. Make sure the desk is positioned in a way where the light's not behind you. These things really matter. So when you're taking a prospect to that house, and you're showing them and pointing out all these things. It's such an easy sale. That person can imagine himself or herself sitting right there. And you basically sold them on the idea you're not buying a house. You're buying a way to make an easy living or a better living. And that you, you'll enjoy working right through that one little gesture. I'll give you an anecdote. A few weeks ago, I had another event called The Future of Luxury. I was prepping the CEO of Bentley US, Bentley Motors. On the prep call, I saw he was seated uh, in this very swanky background and i saw you know shiny stuff at the back i said is that your office he said no it's my kitchen i said is that a microwave he said yes he said i'm very proud of it he was very proud of his microwave and all the gadgets that were at the back i mean this is a guy who sells three hundred thousand dollar bentley cars and he's french by the way he said i sit at my kitchen table the island and this is where i do all my work and he was exceedingly proud of that now you see Everyone's got their own, uh, you know, preference, their whatever tickles their fancies. But he wanted to convey a message about himself that this guy is with the times, his gadgets are uh, modern, uh, the background is sleek, and that's the image he's trying to send of Bentley. That's no longer your fuddy-duddy granddad car, or your dad car, or just a chauffeur car. It could be a car you can enjoy. So when you're looking at remodeling a house or you're trying to sell a house. Get the client to pony up some money to fix that one room that can be another showcase along with the kitchen and the bathrooms. Really, really good point. And in some properties, maybe it's two rooms. You know, if two there's rooms is in her because the spouse invariably does that. And in some properties, I mean, if, if you're very, very well off, guess what? You have a classroom. So that's another thing. I didn't mention this before. 
So what are we seeing now? A lot of these kids are staying at home, right? They're doing partials in school, partial at home. What's the challenge for these kids? There's no set place for them. They're looking at smaller screens. They're totally distracted. We're talking about under 10, under 12, all right? What do you do? If they have a nursery that's not used anymore, turn that into a classroom. Give a classroom-like feeling. Have bigger screens. It'll cost you about 20 grand to fix that room, but guess what? You make it professional. Your kid feels better if you're trying to entice a family into that house. If you with that $20,000, you sold that house because the kids love that room. Daddy, mommy, I want that room. I want to be here. I like that house. Right there, you've done the sale. When you and I were on the call last week, the fact, though, that while we're making adjustments right now to you know help people in this environment and absolutely with properties that are currently listed for sale right now, but as we continue in months and years ahead, the your view that we all have old habits and we likely will go back to prior lifestyles in a lot of ways that right now is spoken by a lot of vocal people that we're going to be like this forever. And, you know, the, the office is gone and, you know, a lot of changes that our culture may see indefinitely. So tell us a little bit about your view on that. I'm a bit old school. We are human beings. We need structure. We need separation between church and state. As long as our vaccines work, we will see a return to offices. One permanent change would be flexible working hours that I foresee. So just like how a century ago we had a five-day work week come into effect, you're now going to have a situation where companies may not be able to ask their staff to spend five days in the office. And that will be for lifestyle reasons. So I foresee it'll be one week in, one week out, or it'll be three days in, two days out. I foresee Friday being a permanent work from home in one. That I see Fridays is going to be where you had casual Fridays, you'll have work from home Fridays now. So I do see that happening. But we are social creatures. We will go out. We will socialize. Uh, we will have happy hours. We've gone through worse. Uh, the United States and the rest of the world has lived through a flu pandemic in 1918 to 1920. It survived two world wars. I have no doubt we'll be able to overcome this. The only thing is the technology will enable us to work from anywhere. And that is the major change that will happen in our lives is that I come into my office. All I need is my laptop and my cell phone. I don't need anything else to be equipped to do my work, right? But that's because I'm corporate back end. But if you're a baker or if you're a store owner, you will have to have merchandise in your store. In the luxury business, you have to touch and feel. At the end of the day, when we are buying online right now, we are buying products that we are familiar with. So you're doing a lot of replenishment. But if you have to discover a new collection, if you're a buyer from a department store, you have to go to a fashion show to touch the fabric, to see what it looks like in person, to see it on a mannequin, to see it on a model. So I don't see that changing. It's right now what we're going through is a pandemic. It's a health care. And that's the reason why we've basically, we've come to this point where we've had to adapt. Had we not had this pandemic, the luxury industry was on track to have its best year ever in history. That's how robust our global markets were. The only lasting changes I see here are flexible working hours, more working from home, but I do see a return to the office. The danger in the interim period is avoiding a crash in the commercial real estate market. That is a real danger. If people stay away from offices for another six months to a year, and people default on their rents, and companies default on their rents, then that could precipitate a crisis because then landlords 
may not be able to meet their mortgage requirements. And the banks may basically step in. And if that happens, you could have a commercial real estate market crash. That is not a very good scenario because in 2007, 2008, we had the housing market crash, which eventually morphed into you know the financial market crash. So we have to be very careful about that possibility that the commercial real estate market is in a very precarious situation right now, not just in the United States, but around the world. So as long as that doesn't tip into a disaster situation, we are okay. But if that does, then we have to make sure that it doesn't affect other sectors of the economy because, you know, the governments will have to step in to bail out all these landlords and all these REITs and, you know, everyone who's involved in commercial real estate. I completely agree. And the flexible work schedule for us as a business, we have seen so, so much in our employees of being, of working so hard and being super innovative and getting things done in this flexible environment while everyone's working from home and working at different hours. And you mentioned indefinitely Fridays off or or Friday flexibility. It reminds me of when I lived in New York City for the summer when I was working there in college. And every Friday, everyone left midday to get out of the city or go, you know, begin their weekend plans. And I thought that that was the coolest thing. Back then, there was very little flexibility on, you know, hours if you're working some sort of corporate job. But now it's, you know, we can do whatever we want to from wherever we are any time of day. And that's pretty cool. So absolutely. I've, I've looked, I've, I've always had summer Fridays. I have to say that the workforce is working, working longer hours. You, you know, people thought that, you know, working from home, everyone would slack off. They're not. No way. Uh, not no for way. us. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I see that, you know, I think that'd be a great improvement in our culture if we basically made summer Fridays permanent and wrapped work at two o'clock. I mean, it really would make a tremendous difference in lifestyles. So a question came in about how to brand yourself as a luxury agent or broker only. So in other words, I think this is separate from the brand, the brand meaning a corporate brand, like how to personally brand a luxury agent or broker. And if you're in a small market with a close knit community, how to break into that market if they see you as an outsider. So how do you become a luxury broker? The thing about being a broker is you have to have a property, right? Or you have to get a listing. And the way you do that is by positioning yourself. So I'd suggest uh, first arm yourself with some tools. Have a good website, a good calling card, and make sure that you spend some money on a website that highlights your values and what really matters to you in terms of you know quality, craftsmanship, and the appreciation of the finer things of life. So that when you're going to pitch, people understand that you know you're coming from that particular angle. Unless you manage to get a highly priced property, the first property to make it, I mean, you have to have a transaction or a listing, right? Only then can you call yourself, unfortunately, the chicken and egg thing. So the way to do that is to equip yourself first with the knowledge and with the marketing and with the digital tools. And every step of the way, you want to make sure that you're addressing, for example, the demeanor itself. I look at all these Beverly Hills brokers. Man, you don't know if they're the broker or they're the client. They, you know, they're the same Hermes, Birkin bags, they got all these fat rings on them, and you know you, you don't know. I mean, it's a Christmas tree that's walking, right? And all these guys, they mirror the lifestyle of their clients. Maybe they're not as wealthy as their clients, but they try to look the part. So what I'm saying is, walk the walk, talk the talk. Arm yourself with the knowledge and the lingo. Read publications that are consumer-facing, like Rob Report, Forbes, uh, Fortune, that gives you an idea of what's going on with the wealthy. 
and their market, right? What are their concerns? So that you can talk the talk. Dress the part. Uh, when you're going on listings, make sure that you have, if you have some money, get a bespoke suit. I know that everyone's dressed casual, dress smart. I always tell people it's better to be a little overdressed than underdressed. It really helps. And dress smart. You know, I'm not saying, you know, dress to the teeth. I mean, if you're a woman, dress appropriately. If you're a man, dress appropriately. But make sure that you're making an effort to look the look. And then the tools. People are going to check, you know, when you hand your business card, they're going to look at your website. Tell them to take a look at our website. Have some thought leadership pieces, some opinion pieces there. What do you think about luxury, right? What's your approach? Have a nice video, a professionally shot video of you. So you have all these tools out there and your personality is basically out there digitally and physically for people to gauge who you are. And then you make sure that you, when you're competing for listings, you go and pitch and you be bold and, you know, make small talk. As I said, learn a lot about the luxury business and about the latest, uh, you know, footwear or the latest bag style. Study your prospect. Always study the prospect. So if you know that this person is an actress and do a Google search on that person, say, all right, what does he or she buy? Any photographs of her with this bag? Does she like Christian Louboutin? Does she like a Birkin? Small stuff like that. And you can just say them when you talk, hey, there's a brand new Birkin out there. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, before you know it, you have a bond. You want to create that bond. You don't have anything else but the gift of the gap. And brokers have the gift of the gap. You know, they can sell anything. So if you're already a broker and you're looking to move upstream or up a bit, just make sure that you're more elegant, more poised in the way you approach the prospect or the customer. And then, of course, it's luck. I hate to say this. No one wants to admit this, but a lot of it is basic luck. You know, someone calls, someone sees a listing, someone drives by. That's serendipity. So you just have to put good thoughts out there. Positive energy. So what is one brand that has been longstanding that you've admired for a long time and why? A uh, luxury brand? Yes. Hard to say if there's one brand. I can mention a couple of brands in each category very quickly. I'll start with Hermes. And I'm a guy, so I'm obviously I'm not interested in handbags. But I'll tell you, I'm a customer of their ties. And I've been a customer of Hermes ties for about 22 years old. Why do I like their ties? Great quality. I never retire my ties. I wear them for decades. The silk is so good, it never, ever sags. Pure quality. Great colors. The right size. I can recognize an Hermes tie when I see one. I feel I'm part of a club. Very exclusive. The Hermes Club. So what the Birkin does or the Kelly does for women, the tie does for men. I'm a very big fan of Savile Row in London, bespoke tailoring. I've been a customer of uh, this tailor called Anderson and Shepherd for decades now. And I remember when I graduated from college, I had to make some decisions about my life. And I'm a formal guy. I won't deny that. I didn't wear my jacket for this interview. I should have, maybe. But... I asked my friends in London, I said, look, I need a good tailor and I'm a big, big fan of Prince Charles. All right. Maybe that may be a negative right now, but they pointed me to Anderson and Shepard, Prince Charles' tailors. I've been with them for 20, more than 20 years. The materials, the fitting, the personal attention, and my clothes last decades. To me, that's true quality. I feel good about myself. I have one business wearing those clothes. There's a distinction between being dressed well and dressing well and being well-dressed and dressing well. And I keep that in mind. I understand the Savile Row is understated. There's no label. 
that it makes you feel good. And that's what is important to me in luxury. It makes me feel good. It's exclusive. It's not opulent. And it basically does something that only I know uh, and makes me confident. If I'm looking at some other brands uh, that I typically like uh, in automotive, obviously there are plenty of other brands out there. Uh, the brand that I've liked for their consistency is Bentley because Bentley is not Rolls-Royce where there are these big boats, but Bentley's always been a bit understated. And, you know, if you sit in a Bentley car, it's very silent. The leather's soft and plush, and you just get a feel of, I mean, it's just a sheer pleasure. You don't feel like you're on the road. You feel like you're flying. You don't feel the bumps on the road. So again, to me, the product, at the end of the day, luxury is not just the marketing. It's not just the, the name. It's the actual product quality and the creativity that's very key to me. So for me, my use of luxury has to be utilitarian as well as the sense of belonging and creativity. So if I had to say in the math market, Hermes in fashion and uh, in bespoke, I like Savile Row. And then I've got a ton of other brands that I can't mention other than I'll get into trouble for favoring one brand over the other. But for you, it comes down to the quality of the merchandise. 100%. I'm not seduced. I'm sorry to yeah. say that. I'm not seduced by just the marketing. I look at where the product is made. Mm -hmm. I'm very particular about that. If you're spending uh, some amount of money, you have to be particular about who's making it, how is it made, where is it made. I, I like British luxury a lot because a lot of British luxury is made in the UK. A lot of Italian luxury may not be wholly made in Italy, but at least they got the polish. The same thing with French. A lot of the French luxury is made in France, but some of it is not. Quality is important to me. The story is important. The brand is important, but quality is always first. Awesome. I love it, Mickey. I'm going to touch on next up for those of you who enjoyed Block Talk today and might want to get to know more about concierge auctions as a company. We do have on December 4th an educational course that offer that it's just one hour in order to become a preferred agent with our company. So you can take that crash course on December 4th. You can sign up for it on blocktalknow.com. It's just a little plug that I'm going to throw in. And other than that, I am going to close this out. So Mickey, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. This was a bang up job. Thank you. Great work.